Thanks for joining us for Advent as we explore the question, What Child Is This? Doxa Church is a family of servant missionaries who make disciples of Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. Our 2016 Christmas gatherings will be on Friday, December 23rd at 6.30pm and Saturday, Christmas Eve at 10am. For more information, visit doxa-church.com. As Donald mentioned, and you may or may not know, it is Christmas time. And uh, it seems insane that that's true. Uh, It has come so quickly. It seems like just yesterday we were all just wearing two layers instead of four. Uh, I was going to say shorts, but it's it's Seattle. So uh, it's like we've moved from light jackets to heavy jackets. And uh, it just seems like it has come upon us so quickly. Uh, My wife and I were talking yesterday and uh, realizing, my goodness, we missed Black Friday. Uh, This all came upon us so quickly. We just moved to Seattle in August, and so it's just been kind of a blur, and we we don't have a plan. We don't know what we're going to do. If we, I mean, we missed Black Friday. Is it even worth doing presents at this point? It's just, it's hard to know. So uh, it's uh, it's amazing how quickly uh, the seasons come upon us. And uh, I don't know about you, but uh, I I love Christmas. Uh, I, I know that makes me unique uh, in that way, uh, but I just, I, I've always loved Christmas. I love uh, the sights and the smells and the sounds. I love the mall. I love eggnog a great deal. Uh, I love, I love all of it. It's a, a magical, magical season for me uh, that uh, I have very strict rules about, right? Because what's better to go with magic than rules? Uh, so no Christmas music, no Christmas, uh, no eggnog until after Thanksgiving. Am I right? Am I right about that? Yeah. Get a, get a pretty big amen on that one because uh, it's a big deal. I don't want to ruin the magic. I don't want to start doing Christmas music in like mid-October, and uh, by the time Thanksgiving rolls around, I'm sick of it. Uh, So I've got to preserve the magic, and that's a big deal. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of the magic. I actually uh, am also, and and this may come as a surprise to some of you, I'm a big fan of Disney. I know. Most of you look at me and go, yeah, I get that. He looks like a Disney guy to me. I'm actually a huge fan of Disneyland and uh, been there a bunch of times, taking the kids. Uh, actually, the first two times I uh, went with my wife without kids, and it was way better. And um, <laughs> so totally recommend that. Uh, but uh, I, I, I love it. I, I love Disneyland. And a couple years back, when my oldest daughter, who's now eight, when she was five, uh, took her to Disneyland. It was just me and my wife and her, and then uh, kind of our best friends and their daughter, who the, our daughters grew up together. And so just the six of us went to Disneyland, and I was nervous because we went to Disneyland around Christmas time. And I was really concerned that crossing the magic was going to result in it all being ruined, right? And so we go, and the palace is decorated for Christmas, and it's kind of Christmassy, and it's Southern California, right? You know, it's Southern California in December, so it's just like lukewarm. And, uh, and so it was, it was okay, and we were going throughout the day, and nothing was catastrophically ruined. Um, and then at night, there's this like light, spectacular Christmas thing, and we're standing there. I got my daughter on my shoulders, and... And as we're standing there looking at the lights, it starts to snow, right? And it's Southern California, so it's Disney snow. Uh, it's magic. And, 
And as it starts to snow, my daughter looks down at me and she goes, Daddy, it's snowing. And it was just an explosion of magic and heart and goodness all in that moment. So highly recommend Christmas and Disney. They go together and magnify one another in significant ways. So just a word to the wise. But, but in, in, in the midst of all the Christmas magic, my favorite thing about Christmas is the music, right? Bing Crosby, love him. Dean Martin, Nat King Cole, Harry Connick Jr., uh, you know, for the hipsters, she and him, you know, there's, there's a lot of different great options here, but love the music, uh, look forward to the music, that is absolutely the best part of it for me. And now, I, I assume most of you know this, but uh, all of the best Christmas music, all, you know, the uh, White Christmas and I'll Be Home for Christmas, the Christmas song, right? All, all of the kind of iconic Christmas music was written um, in about a three-year span. Do you guys know this? I'm assuming most of you guys knew this. It was written during World War II. And it was written specifically. So Bing Crosby and Nat Cole and, and Irving Berlin and all these guys wrote this music specifically for our soldiers who were overseas fighting in World War II. And it was such a, a, a terrible time. I mean, we, the, America had come out of the Depression just a, a, a few short years before World War II. And now we're in war and guys are all over the, men and women, all over the, all over the world fighting uh, this war. It's just terrible, despicable war. And so as a way to rally the troops, these songs were written so that these men overseas could think fondly towards home and just kind of a way to revive their spirits. So Bing Crosby talks about singing those songs in Europe, you know, to, to the soldiers and the just hundreds and hundreds of soldiers just crying and crying like they wanted to be home for Christmas. It's just very nostalgic piece of that. And so that, that was kind of the desire behind those songs was to promote nostalgia, to, to raise their spirits, to think of home, to think of all these I, kind of American ideals. So um, as we were putting together this Advent series, I was thinking about all these things that uh, make Christmas so special for me, what I love about it, what I long for, what I think about, and was just trying to kind of parse all that out. And I was thinking about these songs and how they were written, written and when they were written, because Nat King Cole's The Christmas Song is pretty much my go-to. Like, love that song. Uh, Vince Guaraldi, O Tannenbaum, like these are just classics. But as I started to think about all of these things that made me so excited about Christmas, I thought, man, they have something in common, all of it, like the mall, Santa Claus, the Christmas trees, eggnog, Bing Crosby, they all have one thing in common. They're not about Jesus. And that was a moment for me where I thought, oh my goodness, like 90% of the things I look forward to about Christmas have actually nothing to do with Christmas. They have a lot to do with nostalgia. They have a lot to do with family. They have a lot to, a lot to do with America. They have a lot to do with American history. They have a lot to do with a lot of things, but very little of it has to do with Jesus. And so what you have is a lot of Christmas things that have nothing to do with Christmas. And that's troubling. Because these things that we love, these things that I love, I'm not going to make this about you, this is about me. These things that I love about Christmas, they, they, they provoke a response in me. I desire them. I long for them. Don't tell my wife, but every June I set aside a week to pretend it's Christmas and I play Christmas music in my office for a week and I allow that for myself. <laughs> It's important. 
But I long for, I long for this season. I long for Christmas. And I, when I realize that those longings and those desires and that affection that I have for this season is largely divorced from Jesus and the actual Christmas story, that was deeply convicting to me. Deeply convicting. Because I also happen to believe that these traditions and rituals and music not only are an expression of our desires, an expression of our longing, expression of our loves, but they also shape us significantly. So they don't just come out of our heart, but they actually shape our hearts. The more we do these things, the more we listen to them, the more experiences get tied to these songs and these traditions and these rituals, the more it shapes our longings and affections so that we want more of them. In fact, one of my uh, favorite writers, theologians, is uh, a gentleman named James K.A. Smith. He he, uh, is a professor at Calvin College. He says this. He says, the core of the person is what he or she loves, and that is bound up with what they worship. That insight recalibrates the radar for cultural analysis. The rituals and practices that form our loves spill out well beyond the sanctuary. Many secular liturgies are trying to get us to love some other kingdom and some other gods. So Jamie Smith talks a lot about um, the role of culture to shape us the way our liturgy shapes us. He calls them cultural liturgies or secular liturgies. And they're just patterns and traditions and habits, ideas that shape us. And And I would argue there may not be a more powerful cultural liturgy than Christmas music. I mean, there are very few things that, that, in, that evoke more emotion or more affection or more longing for a time on the calendar than Christmas music does. Really, this is the power of, of all music, but when you uh, attach significance and meaning to moments, when you uh, tie music to a moment, to a story, to a memory, it just becomes all the more powerful to shape us and make us into the kinds of people that long for those moments again. That's nostalgia, right? So when we think about, when I was thinking about this week, all of these rituals and traditions and patterns and habits and songs that create this longing in me, it made me start to wonder, what is it that I'm longing for exactly? See, all these Christmas songs and all of these Christmas traditions move our emotions, shape our desires, shape our loves. And they tell a different story because they're not about Jesus. They're not about Christmas. So they're, they're telling a completely different Christmas story. And that different Christmas story has a different end and a different purpose and a different hero. It's a different story altogether. So when we talk about peace and love and joy and hope out of those desires, out of those desires that are disconnected from Jesus, they're also asking different gods to accomplish them. So what I want to do in this Advent series is to redirect our loves back to the Jesus story by telling and retelling and retelling the story in such a way that reminds us why we celebrate Christmas in the first place. 
And, I, and I've been so afraid all week that this is going to come off like some fundamentalist, like, Jesus is the reason for the season, and if you have a Christmas tree, you're doing it wrong. It's not what I'm going for here. But to, but to elevate again the story that animated the whole thing to begin with, so that our heart's desire might be redirected back to that instead of some vague idea about faith, hope, love, joy, peace, family, generosity, season of giving that's completely detached from anything meaningful or significant or true. To redirect us back to the beginning of the story and ask the question, what child is this? Who is Jesus? And over the next five weeks, we're going to look at uh, this child is God, this child is man, this child is savior, this child is king, and this child is priest. And I want to ask the question each week, so what? This child is God. Why does that matter? How does that shape the way we celebrate Christmas? This child is man. What does that mean? Why does that matter? How does that shape our celebration and the way we understand this season? This child is savior and king and priest. What does that mean? How does that, how does that help us tell the true story? So this week, this child is God. Luke chapter one. I wanna look at two stories in this larger narrative that occur right before Jesus is born. And, and they're two very similar stories uh, that teach us two pretty interesting things about how all this went down. So Luke chapter one, starting in verse 26. I'm used to waiting for all the pages to turn. It's harder to hear you pressing on your phone to know when to start reading. Luke chapter one, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed or engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, raise your hand, please, raise your hand, if you've ever heard that story. Most of you. Here's the challenge of a story like this. When you hear a story over and over and over, from the time that you were a little child, sometimes it's hard to reread the story with fresh eyes. And so you kind of read through and go, yeah, 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 oh, favored one, I remember this part. This is when Mary finds out she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Got it. But there is something really, really remarkable about this moment. And, and I want you to try to enter into the craziness of what's happening here, as challenging as that may be, because you've heard it so many times. But what you've got is a young woman, a teenage girl, who's engaged. How many of you young ladies, or ladies of any age, have ever been engaged or are engaged? Raise your hand, raise them high, be proud. There's nothing to be ashamed of. You're probably sitting next to the guy now. 
probably. <laughs> There's a lot going on in your life when you're engaged. Is that true? You're starting to make plans. You've got dreams. You've got hopes. You're, you're, you're reconciling the, uh, the man that you're about to marry to the list that you made when you were 10, figuring out how you ended up here. There's, a, there's just a lot going on, right? Mary is, is planning a wedding. She's, she's probably at this moment, you know, uh, editing her Pinterest page and, and figuring out the dress and who's going to be the maid of honor. I mean, it's just a lot going on in the life of a young teenage girl who's engaged to be married. She's got a vision. Right? She's got a vision for what her life is going to be like. She's going to marry Joseph. They're going to have 2.5 kids. They're going to move to the suburbs once it gets too crazy in the city. It's, that's the plan. And then one night, an angel shows up at her front door and says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And in maybe the understatement of the Bible, it says in verse 29, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. In the Greek, that means she freaked out, okay? As well she should. I don't know what the angel looked like. I don't know if he's got a big booming, I, I don't know, but it's crazy. This teenage girl engaged to be married, making plans for her life, has an angel show up at her door and say, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And then says, listen, you're going to get pregnant. The, behold, verse 31, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. And this is, it, it, this is not just a, a, a baby announcement. This is who the baby is. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his, of his kingdom there will be no end. So again, no doubt, Mary had a vision for what her kids were going to be like. And she's, you know, thinking, gosh, I hope we have a son first, and he could be a carpenter just like his daddy, and I could just picture them working, you know, doing woodwork together in the shed. She's got a vision, and this angel shows up and goes, yeah, about that. Um, yeah, he'll be a carpenter for a bit but then he's going to reign the universe forever. It's all right. You know, like, it, this is not probably in her wildest dreams the vision that she had for her life. And yet God steps in, disrupts the plan, disrupts her life, and says, here's how it's going to go down. Her response in verse 34 is amazing. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Mary's very practical. I don't understand uh, physiologically how this is going to happen. That's her response. It wouldn't have been my first question. Verse 35, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. I just picture Mary going, oh, okay. I, I, I figured that's how you'd do it. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Is that a remarkable response or what? Her entire life has just been disrupted. Her whole vision for what her life might look like, what her family might look like, it's all been taken away from her. 
At, at this moment, like, she, she knows very, very little. She knows that she's been impregnated by the Holy Spirit and that her son is going to be called Jesus, but then rule the universe in some capacity. She doesn't know the path that God has just laid before her. She doesn't know that her baby boy is going to be a carpenter for many years, but then he's going to leave home and he's going to be an itinerant preacher. He's going to perform miracles. He's going to, to rally the Jews to his side and rally many of them against him, that he is going to be uh, put through a, a farce of a trial, that he will be convicted, hung on a cross, killed. She has no idea at this point that she will one day be at the foot of the cross with Jesus' best friend next to him, looking up at her son being killed, only days later to see him being resurrected, and then 40 days later or so, ascend into heaven. I mean, she's got no idea, right? That's why that song, Mary, Did You Know? It's a terrible song. The answer is no. It should be one of those duet songs that one person, Mary, did you know? No. <laughs> Mary, did you know? No. She, she just didn't. She couldn't have. He had no idea. It's a terrible song. It's hard for us. It's hard for us to enter into the crazy of this story. It just seems so far away, and, and it seems, you know, you hear it so many times, and in so many different contexts, it starts to feel like a fairy tale or mythology or something. But what's happening here is so significant that Mary's story that had, you know, was a, a, a story mostly not yet written. She's a very young girl. She has her whole future out ahead of her, and God shows up and disrupts the whole thing. Trying to put yourself in Mary's position, understanding that she has one question, how, and then her response is, yeah, I'm in. I mean, that blows my mind. That would probably not be my response because I've got plans. I've got a vision for how my life's supposed to go. I'm writing my story. Now, a couple years back, uh, Starbucks came out with a cup. You may have heard of this. It was a red cup for Christmas time. And um, satanically, it was uh, devoid of any Christmas paraphernalia whatsoever. No snowflakes, no wreaths, no trees, no lights, nothing. Just red, just blank. And the, the people freaked out. And since that, you know, Starbucks is here in Seattle, I assume most of you were to blame. The internet went crazy, and uh, everyone was saying, how could Starbucks take Christmas off of their cups? I mean, this is, this is horrific and satanic in every way. And uh, a representative from Starbucks named Jeffrey Fields, who is the, was the VP of Design and Content, said this in one article I read. It says, in the past, we have told stories with our holiday cup designs. This year, we wanted to usher in the holidays with a purity of design that welcomes all of our stories. Catch that last part. This year, we wanted to usher in the holidays with a purity of design that welcomes all of our stories. So Santa Claus and wreaths and lights and uh, uh, snowflakes were far too narrow 
for Starbucks to put on their cups. Too exclusive. We had, it had to be blank. We, we, we're, we're inventing, I, I, you know, be honest, I miss Santa. I, I miss the old heresies. Now we're on to these new ones where, where Santa is too religious and snowflakes are too Christian and so we have to strip them all away so that we can write our own stories onto the cups. There's a problem with that. It's not our story. And I'll say this, uh, for all the outrage around Starbucks uh, taking the uh, Christmas references off the cup, one is um, snowflakes and wreaths and Christmas trees and Santa Claus and all of those things that were ripped off the cup aren't Christian. So we were mad that Starbucks, not we, y'all, <laughs> were mad that they took not Christian things off the cups. So that's one. Two is, it's not Starbucks' job to tell the Christmas story. Right? Whose job is that? Ours, Christians, the church. It's our job to tell the story. Because if they tried, they would, they'd do it with wreaths and snowflakes. And that's not the Christian story. That's not the Christmas story. It never has been. And it cannot be. So what we, what we see in this story here. This angel disrupting Mary's life, breaking into her life, redirecting the whole thing is, Christmas is not our story. Christmas is God's story. It's always been God's story. It's never been our story. She was invited into a greater story, but there is still a challenge even in that, right? I mean, imagine what's happening here, right? So she's got these plans. She's got this direction. The angel shows up and goes, actually, we're going to do this, not this. And the, the this that she's being invited into is to be the mother of God. That, that God will become flesh in her. That she will care for and mother and love and raise God incarnate. That's what she's been invited into. And yet even in that, I mean, that's bigger than any of her greatest, wildest dreams. Maybe she dreamed that Jesus would be a great carpenter. Maybe the best in all of Galilee. But I mean, that's probably the tip top of her vision for her firstborn son. She has been offered king of the universe. And as great an offer as that is, she still had to die to her own story. She still had to lay down her own desires, her own hopes, her own dreams to be able to take up this bigger, better, grander story. And that's the ask that Christmas makes of us. We can hold on to our own stories hold on to our traditions and our vision for what Christmas is, our songs and our traditions and our rituals and our things, the things that we long for, and we can live in that. 
Or we can respond to the ask of the Christmas story, the challenge of the Christmas story, lay down those desires, lay down that vision, and take up something better. A better story, a truer story, a more meaningful story, a more transformative story. A story that can actually make good on the promises of the Christmas season. So we still talk about peace and love and hope and joy and generosity. But detached from the story that animates them and makes them possible, these become empty platitudes very quickly. When we begin to talk about the kind of peace that we can bring, the kind of joy that we could muster, the kind of hope that we could build, which pales in comparison to the joy and the peace and the love on offer in this Christmas story. So even though Mary was invited into this insane story, she still had to knowingly, willingly die to her vision of what it could all look like. So we don't get to make Christmas about us because it's not about us and it shouldn't be about us. It's his story. It's about him. He gets to decide. He gets to be the one that defines what, what these things are and to bring about what these things can bring about. It's a better story. His story is a better story. Number two, the other side of this. Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. We're going to start in verse 18. As you can imagine, in a situation as crazy as this one, God doesn't just need to tell Mary. He also needs to clue Joseph in. In equally or uh, more dramatic fashion. It's harder for us men to hear things. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. There's three asks that the Lord makes of Joseph in this story. Three, three challenging requests. One, that Joseph marry a pregnant woman. It, it always makes me a little uncomfortable when I read in this that uh, that. Joseph was considering divorcing Mary, right? When, when he found out that she was pregnant. And that always makes me a little uncomfortable. Like, gosh, Joseph, step up, man. Like, but if you were engaged and your fiance, whom you had never known, um, was suddenly pregnant, 
What does that mean 99.9999% of the time? Don't answer, bad, right? It means something real bad's going on. And so you probably have every right to go, yeah, you know, this engagement is great. I really like you, but seems like we're headed in different directions. But God shows up and goes, no, Joseph, I want you to marry this woman, which subjects him to public scorn. Imagine his buddies going, Joseph, come on, man. Like, you know what this means, right? You know what's going on. How are you still marrying this girl? Okay, so that's ask number one. Ask number two is, he's asked to marry a pregnant woman who says that the Holy Spirit did it. That's a really tough ask. Now he's subject to public scorn and public mockery. As his buddies go, come on, Joseph, what are you doing? He goes, no, 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 it's cool, guys. She said the Holy Spirit, it, it's the Holy Spirit. She's not cheating on me. It's totally the Holy Spirit. Yeah, bro. Uh... <laughs> right? So public scorn. And, and if you think about it, 2,000 years of sermon mockery as well. Because guys like me take cheap shots at Joseph in this scenario for 2,000 years. <laughs> That's the ask, Right? So public scorn, public mockery, and then third, this may have missed you, but culturally very significant. He is told in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. One of the rights of a father in the ancient Middle East was naming his firstborn son. There was no person in the family more important than the firstborn son. And it was the right of the father to name that son, usually tying it back to the family, to lineage. And Joseph's right to name his son was taken from him by God, which is a significant death to his authority, death to his manhood, death to his role in the family, especially in this culture. So he's being asked to do a lot of things He's having so much of his freedom taken away from him. He is being told to submit to a very different story than he had planned or would ever want for himself and for his family. So what do we find out about this? That if this child is God, that means you're not. I mean, a really significant part of the Christmas story is a, a realization and an owning up to, I'm not in charge. Not only is this not my story, but, but I, I don't even get to be like the main character in my story. God is shaping, God is moving, God is doing, that, that, I, that he is God and I'm not God, which means he gets to ask me to do what I would never want to do, and I do it. Which means he gets to challenge me to be something I would never want to be, and I walk in it. Which means he takes away from me the authority that culture has given me, or the rights to self-determination that the, that the culture has given me, and I and I get to do it willingly. I mean, there, there are few higher ideals in our culture than I'm in charge of me. I get to decide who I am going to be, what I am going to do, what matters about me. I am in charge of me. That dies in the Christmas story. 
If this child is God, that means you're not God. And I'm telling you, that is a hard, hard, hard thing to hear at a practical level because we really like being God. In that, now we would all go, well, I don't try to be God. Okay. In that, we tried to decide what matters, what we should pursue, who we should be, what we should spend our time doing, what we should spend our energy on, how we should spend our money, how we should spend, we, we are self-determining beings and, and we function, even if we don't name it, we function as if we were the God of our own universe. And so the Christmas story challenges that idea in significant ways. And here's one very practical application of this for this Christmas season, okay? If I am God, then I get to decide what's good and I get to decide what's joyful for me and what would bring me peace and what would bring me hope and what would bring me love and what would bring me all, all the things I want. I get to decide what that is. And so it's a very, very quick jump from I'm in charge and I am self-defining to the materialistic culture we find ourselves in that's about to spend about $900 billion on Christmas. Because I get to decide that these things are going to make me the person that I want to be. These things will give me what I've always wanted. These things will do for me what I've always wanted to have done for me. If we're in charge, we define, then we also dictate what good we ought to pursue. And very quickly, we start to reach outwards to go, okay, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, because that's going to bring me hope, that's going to bring me peace, that's going to bring me security, that's going to bring me comfort, that's going to make me feel loved. I'm going to reach and grab and grab and grab and buy and buy and buy and buy. All of that comes from telling a story that's about us where we are in charge and we are God. The challenge of the Christmas story is that the child Jesus is God which means we are not. And if we are not, then God can make any ask. He can ask us to do any challenging thing, and we do it. Out of blind obedience? Absolutely not. Because Im embedded into this story is the good news that the God of the universe loved us so very much that he entered into creation to be with us, to walk among us, to teach us about the kingdom, to be our God, not a God so distant, but a God near, a God who would be born into the lowliest of circumstances to demonstrate for us what truly matters, to remind us that we are not God and we could never be God. And the most freeing, liberating, hopeful thing that we could ever be convinced of is that we are not God. Because here's what we want to do. We have longings that are inborn. We want peace. We want hope. We want love. We want all of the things that we talk about during this season, we want those things and we ought to want those things. But when we are God, who's responsible for bringing them about? We are. And so we labor 
over crafting an experience of Christmas that will bring us the hope and the joy and the peace and the love that we so desperately want. And so we spend and we spend and we worry and we worry and we want to create a perfect Christmas for our kids and we want to create this perfect family moment. We want to create this thing and we take it all on ourselves to make this thing happen and for it to fulfill all the desires we've always wanted to have fulfilled. And the Christmas story reminds us that's not your job. Because you're not God. You've been given the desire for peace, hope, love, joy, and all of it. You've been given that desire because those desires, if you really pursue them to their very end, lead you to the face of God who can be all of those things and bring about all of those things for you. So the pressure's off. God has come to bring about all the things you've always wanted, always needed, in the deepest parts of you. So you no longer have to bear that burden yourself or place that burden on other people or other things that were never meant to bear it either. That's, that's why we celebrate. So yes, talk about peace and love and joy and, and listen to Bing. I love Bing. Bing's great. I'm not trying to take Bing away from you. But let's remember that, that Bing's not singing, he's singing about a, a, a different hope, a different joy, a different peace, and ultimately a different holiday. And it's shaping you. It's reordering your affections for something else. It's making you long for and desire something else, a different story. That's not Jesus' story. Jesus' story is about a lot of things. It's about, it's, it, first of all, it's about that it's his story and not our story. It's about the fact that he's God and we're not God. And we're going to explore over the next four weeks a bunch of other things that Jesus' story is about. But my prayer and my hope for us is that this season, that we would celebrate Jesus' story. Because if we are not bearing witness to the true story, who is We've relied on our culture to tell the story for us for a really long time. And our culture's not telling the story anymore. And that's good news because then we have to. And we were made to. And it's a better story anyway. Let's tell that story. It's not our story. It's his story. It's not, we're not God. He's God. And all of that is good news. All of that is a better story. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have given us a better story. That um, all of the money in all of the Fifth Avenue advertising firms in the world could not come up with a better story. They talk about vague ideals like hope and peace and love without grounding them in anything real or true. They prick at our heartstrings but can't touch our souls. They move our emotions, but don't change us. They don't challenge us. They don't call us to something more. You call us to something more. Because all that you called us to 
is a fraction of what you did for us. You can call us to everything because you have accomplished everything. Lord, I pray that this season we would tell your story, that we would be reminded of your story. In all the ways culture is trying to tell a different story, I pray that you would use that to remind us of your story, that we would sing, that we would tell, that we would celebrate the truth of your story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.